one. For those of you who um, keep up with the Torah portion reading cycle, you know that this week's parasha included one of the most well-known events during Israel's wilderness experience, that being one of the most well-known, also the most unfortunate, and that being the construction of the golden calf and the judgment for, from God that resulted as a consequence of it. Now the lessons of this event are many, and they've been expounded upon multiple times from this bima by myself and the other two rabbis. We've done so at yeshiva as well. So rather than expounding upon these familiar passages this morning, going through that once again, I'm going to use this grievous air of the children of Israel to bring forth, kind of come to launch a message that will hopefully challenge each of us as we reflect on our actions, our behaviors, and our attitudes as the disciples of the Mashiach. Of course, always, it's always a good time to do this, but as rabbi, senior rabbi spoke last week, you know, we are now, at the, we are a month, now we're three weeks from Passover. Any time that we're approaching and entering into the feasts of God, his appointed times, it's good for us to take stock and to examine ourselves. Now, if there's one thing that every reader of the story of the golden calf should be able to acknowledge, is that the children of Israel were not acting as a people that had been called out and marked by Yehovah. And if you look, take a look at the title of this morning's message and relate it to what the Israelites, the children of Israel, were doing that were at the base of Sinai when they, when they had the calf constructed and they began to worship it, it's obvious they were not setting their affections on the above. And not just the physical above of up the mountain where the cloud still was and where Moses was at, but obviously more to the above in that they were not setting their affections, their hearts, towards God and his word. Instead, they were concerned with the temporal. They were concerned with the immediate. They were concerned with the flesh. They're out in the wilderness, and they're like, well, we don't know what happened to Moses. I've taught before how when you read the, when you read the verses in detail, the impression is that they probably thought Moses had died up on the mountain. And they were wondering, well, now who's to lead us? So they were worried very much about their physical well-being, and where they were at that immediate time. Now, of course, from our vantage point in history, we're now 3,400 plus years removed from the golden calf. It's easy to see the failures of the Israelites and even marvel at how easily they fell back into idolatry after being freed from Egypt. Despite being miraculously sustained through the wilderness, through the water from the rock, through the manna that was being provided at this time, having escaped Egypt the way they did and gone through Yam Suf, the Red Sea. Also, only 40 days after having heard the voice of God speak from the cloud atop the mountain of where they resided, despite all of those things, they still fell back into their old, the old and familiar ways of Egypt. Once things have kind of quieted down, they become still, they weren't seen, they were still being sustained by the manna and the water, but things had become quiet, they'd become still, they go back to their old ways. 
And it does make one pause and ask, how? How did that happen? And, though, and although we easily see their failure, and perhaps we see it easily because we are prone to judge the faults of others before we judge our own, any follower of Mashiach in today's world, and especially here in Western society, who is honest with himself or herself, would have to admit that there are many problems with our own communities. Because we also fail to be always setting our affections on the above. The problems we have are many, but chief among them are plagues of idolatry, contention and confusion, and quarreling and backbiting, which reside among all those who claim to follow the banner of the Messiah. While it's always good to examine and to learn from the heirs of, the, of past generations, such as using the story of the golden calf and the children of Israel. We can't just look back, study it, figure out why it happened, and then again, like just judge them and say how foolish they were, or how could they have done that. What's more important is we read these stories that we consider the current state of, me, of the many communities within the body of the Mashiach. It's paramount that we make the effort to reflect and to correct the faults of our own time, the faults within ourselves and the faults we see within the body. To do this, it would be beneficial to establish, of course, a measuring rod. How is it we're to measure? How is it we, that what is the, our plumb line to be to see what does a straight community, what does a community standing on the word of God and in alignment with the spirit of God, what does that look like and then compare it to ourselves so that we can see how we stack up. Are we slanted? Are we crooked? Perhaps we've even toppled over. So this morning we'll be using um, as, our, as our measuring rod as we do the self-examination, we're going to be using Colossians chapter 3. This will be our plumb line. Specifically, we want to see how it describes a healthy community of Yeshua's followers. Colossians 3, 1, 2, and 12 through 17 says the following. If then you were raised with the Messiah, seek those things which are above, where Messiah is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as the Messiah forgave you, you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful." Let the word of the Messiah dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the same of the Lord Yeshua, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The first thing that Paul signifies in this passage is that those who have given themselves over to Yeshua, over to the Messiah, they are to seek those things that are above and not the things here on earth. Now you may be asking, because I just said we're going to use these verses to examine the community, our community, but more broadly all the communities of, that, follow, that follow the Mashiach. Why would I use a, as, my, as our plumb line this standard that starts off about focusing on the things above? 
Why use that for verses that teach us to focus on the things above when we're examining the communities of believers here on earth? After all, one could argue that placing emphasis on the community is looking at something temporal or earthbound. It's dealing with what's here in the present. After all, a community, even one of believers, such as we have here at Rosh Pinah, exists on the earth, which is physically absent from God who is above. As Paul states elsewhere in his writing, 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 9. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well, pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be pleased, present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. So although we as a, as a community of disciples might prefer to be absent from the body and present with God who is in heaven, who is above, the reality is that our, in our current state we are absent from God and present in the body in this earth. Therefore, the community of disciples in which we exist, although hopefully focused on the things above and looking forward to our full unification with God, we're here on earth. We're here in the flesh. So we have to deal with that. So what are we to make of this reality where the community in which we live and to which we look for strength and support is earthbound? What it should warn us, first of all, it is, there's a warning here, is that if we make our community an end or goal in itself, if we're just about the community, rather than recognizing that it, the community, is a means or a structure that helps us focus our affections correctly, focus our affections on the above, if, if we forget about focusing on the above and instead just focus on the here, the now, the temporal, the community itself, we run the risk of failing to keep our affection on Yeshua, on, on the Messiah, on God. Now as a side, personally I would say this is where I feel when I look at rabbinic Judaism where I feel it often goes into air and why it often goes into air. Because there, too often, not for all, but for too many, the community itself becomes the end of their existence. It's really about being Jewish, about being in the Jewish community, being a community of Jewish people, not actually about God. Now understandable, it's understandable that this has occurred to the Jewish people because of the persecution and the anti-Semitism they faced throughout the centuries and millennia. That type of persecution and hatred by the world is going to force you to kind of circle the wagons and focus inwardly just on the community. But it's, but it's also tragically wrong because too many have lost their vision of God by just focusing on the vision of the community and what defines the community. What are the traditions of the community? What are the teachings of the community? And I point to it where you see rabbinic Judaism is led this way. How many Jews are actually even religious and focused on God? The reality is the majority, I'm not saying all, but the majority of Jews are secular. Um, I'm just trying to think of a, uh, well, Chuck Schumer represents the average Jew more than a Ben Shapiro does. Hopefully you know both, who both those individuals are. But that's the reality that's out there. They're still Jewish by all means. They keep the traditions. They, they, they keep the identity. But it's focused again about just being Jewish, not about the relationship with God or being the people that have been called out by God. 
Now, I pick on the Jews there, but I have to say many Christian communities and churches, I would argue, are just in, are in jeopardy of making the same error. For their central concern too often becomes about the community itself rather than the purpose for which that community is supposed to exist. And where we see Christian communities fall into this type of error, I, I, there, I think there's two common ways we see it, two common forms. First of all, we see that a community is centered or almost specifically around just one individual. It's the leader of that community that everyone is focused towards. People look to the leader to provide for them in all regards. They look to him to provide for their spiritual leadership and teaching, um, but, um, but also just their well-being, their happiness, all things. Now, in most extreme instances, we can look at a cult. Um, think of like David Koresh and the Branch Divinians back in the 90s. You see that where it was just all where they were basically lifting him up as a Messiah type figure. But it's also found in congregations or ministries that's built around the personality of the pastor um, or the leader of it. Now, I've always said you have to be wary of churches and ministries that take on, the, on its leader's name. And sadly, if you've been following the news over the last couple months in evangelical circles, you, see, you know of a ministry that's basically one of the best, what, what I thought was one of the best ministries out there in terms of evangelism and apologetics has completely been toppled, and that's Ravi Zacharias's ministry. He passed away last year, and unfortunately after his death, it's now come out, they have done a full investigation that he was a sexual predator, and he was abusing women and using the ministry's money, he was using his position of power, and most devastating, he was even telling the women that he was trying to have relationships with that they were his blessings, they were his gifts from God because of his ministry. I mean, he was using God's name in vain. And this has been very difficult for me because I have very few public heroes out there and Ravi was one of them and it's, I mean, that's been toppled. But, but I didn't want, I didn't follow my own advice. I always said don't, don't, or be leery of a ministry that puts the leader's name on it. There was the sign. He had put his name on the ministry. So we have to watch out for these charismatic leaders, these charismatic pre preachers who retain tight control on their parishioners or on the people who work in the ministry. There have been people in Ravi's ministry. Uh, now, many were blindsided. They had no idea this was going on. But even they have to say, you know, there, you know, there was a woman that came forward in 2017 that was pressing charges on him. He denied it and began to discredit her. And they've all said, because we thought we knew who Ravi was, we thought we knew what type of person it is. We automatically trusted him. We believed what he said. We didn't actually look into this woman's case. We dismissed her immediately. It's because they were focused on this charismatic leader. And he, he, was the, the, he truly was not just the sheep in wolves' clothes. He was the shepherd in wolves' clothes, unfortunately. But because they saw him as who, who we all, you know, as that public image, they were able to be misled. We have to watch out for these communities that are centered on single individuals because it becomes about the teachings of that man, the personality, the charisma of that man, the leadership, the, the, the success of that man, rather than upon things above. As Jeremiah 17, 5 through 6 warns us. Thus says the Lord, 
Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land which is not inhabited. So that's the first form that of the communities that are in jeopardy of falling into an air where it's just about the community. One, the first form is those that are set around an individual. The second is the community that's centered around itself, its own existence. It's centered on the people in it are concerned most about just preserving the community because that's where they get their sense of identity. That's where they get their sense of belonging. These communities are typically strong in traditions. They're very reluctant to change. They're unwelcoming to outsiders that they see as being different from themselves. Um, again, because it's just about the identity of I, that, that's my group. It's the tribalism. Now we see this rampant, not just in, in the churches and in, in Christian communities, um, but we see this rampant in the world today that everything's breaking down into tribalism. And it's like, you know, which side of the aisle you're on, which tribe do you belong to, and you immediately shun and want nothing to do, or you see the other, the one outside the tribe, as being evil. But we see this even in, in Christian communities. Um, I remember when I used, um, you know, it's going back... I guess um, over 15 years, or getting close to 20 years when I lived in Columbus, um, where the church I was attending at that time. The, multiple occasions, I remember being disturbed both times by it, where there was talk of it merging with another church. And because they, they were both older populations, their populations were decreasing, um, and there was financial and other logistic reasons that made sense that why don't we combine these two churches into one. The church I was attending would be to become the home facility, though. And the people were very reluctant to welcome this other community of believers to join them and see full members. They said, well, they can't be full members. We, they have to go through a catechism. They are a, um, you know, a, a year of classes, and, and we need to feel each member out before we can accept them as a full member. And these were people of the same denomination. And that, I mean, it wasn't like they were independent, freestanding churches. They were actually two churches of the same denomination, and they were acting this way. Likewise, there was another opportunity where um, the church I was attending, which was located in an older neighborhood of Columbus that was getting run down, and, and um, there was no room to expand if the church ever did expand. And um, they had an opportunity to... Um, get new land in a, new, in a place that was farther out to allow them to expand and grow and everything, uh, maybe bring in new people, and the community just, they, they couldn't, you know, the, the pastor brought it forward as an opportunity, and the community couldn't accept it. They just closed, they closed down. They're like, no, this is where we're at. This is who we are. We're here. We, do, we don't belong four miles down the road elsewhere. They were just more about the community itself, who the people were that grew up in that community, who lived in that community, and they weren't, you know, I saw it where they were not focused on the things above, focused on God, and how do we create a community that is focused on God. Isaiah 29.13 provides a warning against such things. Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. Now if these are the risks to our community, 
How do we avoid them? How do we live in a community that exists to strengthen each other and help provide endurance in our daily walk with God while remaining focused on things above rather than the community itself? Because there is a responsibility to the community. By no means am I suggesting there's not. There's an importance um, in a community of believers. But how do we stay focused on what is above? Well, in the passage we are using from Colossians, here in chapter 3, Paul instructs us through six commands, essentially, of how we are to act within a Yeshua-centered community. They are, one, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Two, forgive each other. Three, put on love. Four, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. Five, let the word of Christ dwell within you. And six, do everything in the name of Yeshua. Now we're going to go through each of these commands or these instructions. And as we do, I want each of you to ask yourself, how well do I as an individual live up to this standard in our community here at Rosh Pinah? And even though my concern this morning is more broadly with the communities, I believe it's important that we examine what each of us does individually. Because it is too easy to focus on the perceived failings of others in the community at large while ignoring the log in our own eye. This is not the time for such judgments to think, well, so-and-so does this or this group does that. that you know, they're really falling down there on, on me. I needed something at some point, and they really failed me. That shouldn't be your focus. Focus inwardly today and think about where have you failed. Heed the words of Yeshua in Matthew 7, 3 through 5. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother... Let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. All right, so the first instruction that Paul gave here was put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now before we reflect on this command or this instruction, let me first explain a phrase in this verse. Now more modern translations like the NASB, which I just borrowed from, I just used, or um, I think we're reading from the New King James this morning, says put on a heart. But in older translations, so if you're by chance following like the, KG, the KGV, the King James, it'll say put on bowels of compassion and kindness and so on. So what's correct? Harder bowels. Well, when you look in the Greek, the most, the most literal translation of the verse would be bowels, not heart. But what does that mean? Well, what does it mean to put on the bowels of compassion and kindness and humility, gentleness and patience? Well, the bowels are referring, in the Greek mind, would be referring to the inner organs of your body, which include the intestines and the stomach, but also includes the heart and the kidneys. And this term is used by Paul because in the ancient mind 2,000 years ago, it was believed that a person's most tender and their most affectionate feelings originated from these inner organs. And we've talked about this before, that the kidneys, uh, the Yetzer Haran, and the Yetzer have told the, the good and evil inclination was understood in Jewish thought back then to be tied to the left and right kidney. And that you're, when it talks about like the thoughts or the emotions of your heart, 
They really didn't think of the, of the, the beating heart like we do. They, they certainly didn't think of the mind like we do. Instead, they thought of the intestines, the stomach, and so on, being the, the, the locuses of, those, of the, the origin of those feelings and thoughts. So therefore, what Paul is telling the believers at Colossae is to put on the bowels it, this automatically, even before he listed compassion and kindness and humility, gentleness, in their mind, it automatically would have took, taken them to those types of things because that's what they associated with the kidneys and the bowels and so on. Now, in, this, in here, Paul exhorts believers to embrace these tender, and more importantly, they're tender, they're the soft, they're nice, they're emotional, yes, but more importantly, they're self-deflating attributes. We are to show mercy and kindness to each other, meaning we're to be compassionate to one another. And showing compassion is not always easy. Showing compassion is not just um, not being cruel. It's not you know, laughing at someone else or delighting in the misfortunes or the awkwardness of someone else. That's, that's not compassion. It requires that we take an interest in each other's lives. One cannot remain disinterested or apathetic, detached, and show compassion. You have to get involved in the other person's life. Take the English word compassion. The Latin root means to suffer with. If you're to be compassionate, you have to suffer with that individual. You try to understand where that person is and join them in their suffering. That means that although an event in someone else's life might seem trivial to you, or, you, or, or maybe you're just like someone that's like, you know, that person's always depressed and to be around them, they bring me down. I don't want to be brought down. Um, that's not showing compassion if that prevents you from engaging with that other person. If you don't overcome your own desires, your desire to be just comforted and not worry about the burdens of other people, um, if, if you don't suppress these natural inclinations that our flesh has, you're not going to be showing compassion for them and you're not putting on this heart of the, the, the bowels of compassion here. Now Paul speaks about humbleness of mind, which is to say having a humble opinion about yourself. And certainly having a humble opinion about yourself is the best way to avoid disinterest in others so that you can show compassion. So, you know, don't think that, you, well, my problems are so much greater. Maybe they really are, but still show compassion toward the other person and listen and hear what they have to say. They also may say, my time's too valuable to, to, to be bothered by such things. Well, again, humble your mind, humble yourself so that you will take the time to give to others. Humbleness of mind, however, does not mean that you have a negative or weak view of yourself, though, either. That too often is what people think of a humble person or a meek person. They think that, well, it's someone who's, who's weak, who, is, who um, just um, has no identity themselves, or who just rolls over to everything. That's not what a humbleness of mind means either. What it simply means is don't elevate yourself above others. When Paul says to be humble, it doesn't mean, like I was saying, be weak. It doesn't mean be timid. It means instead that you understand your position in relation to, to, to others and acknowledge those who are your equals and those who hold authority over you because God has given it to them. That's truly what it means to be humble. God, now Paul also instructs here about being patient. 
Now, patient here, again, does not necessarily mean being able to withstand difficult or anxious times. It just doesn't mean about being patient like, oh, I really want something to get here, or I went through a bad time, but I know it's going to end at this point on the calendar. I just want to get it over with. That's not the type of patience that Paul is referring to, because again, that's inward focus. That's being patient about your own circumstances. In the context of what he's saying here, it's referring to being patient with others. Even if that individual, they just, not all personalities work together. Personalities conflict, they, they grade on each other. But if that other person it has it just because they're a different personality, maybe you're very introverted like, like I am. And there's this other extroversion, there's this extroverted person, it's just exhausting for you to be around them. You got to get over that. You got to be patient with that person and, and spend the time listening to them, interacting with them, showing kindness and love and compassion towards them. Now, of course, the important question is, you know, Paul gives us instruction, but why are we to act this way? It's because we are the elect. We're the chosen ones of God who are called to be holy. We're not to be common like the rest of the world. We're to be uncommon. And, because we, and we are loved by him, and because he's loved us, we're to love others. We're to show that same love that God has for us to others, as Yeshua said in John 13, 34-35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And it's not so surprising that a community... Of, the, of disciples of the Mashiach, that this would be the way we'd be instructed to treat one another. To treat one another with patience and kindness and gentleness and compassion. Because these are the fruits of our walk with Yeshua. These are supposed to be the fruits. It's supposed to be the evidence that the Ruach actually does reside with us, that it's been deposited in us and that it resides and guides us. After all, many of these words that Paul is speaking about in this instruction, they're in his listing of the fruits in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. All right, so the second instruction that Paul then gives. He says, bear with one another and forgive each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so must you do also. We are to endure each other and that means forgive each other. And it's, but it's important to acknowledge both of these. Oftentimes we immediately jump to the forgiveness aspect of it, but it, we, we should be including both. To be forbearing toward one another speaks to the reality that from time to time, as I was just saying a minute ago, we, tend, we can get on each other's nerves. Perhaps we've had a long and a difficult week, and we need some just private, quiet time to rejuvenate ourselves. But at that time, others are, want to share our company. Or maybe they just need an attentive ear that will listen to them. They're not even looking for you to give advice or to say anything. They just want someone who's going to listen to them. Likewise, we're bound to have disagreements between others on non-essential things when it comes to the world. Now, certainly if we have disagreements that relate to the word and about God, we need to hash those out. But sometimes we just have strong opinions towards one thing or another. And when we express those opinions, it gets on other people's nerves or it aggravates other people. And it could be something as unserious about... You know, during, in the fall, are you a Steelers or are you a, or a Browns fans? 
Gabe's not in here, but Gabe loves to go after Brian because he knows he's a Browns fan. Gabe is a Steelers fan. I don't know if that grates on Brian's nerves or not or if he just laughs it off. But when that happens, you just got to let it go. It could be something as trivial as Dunkin' or Starbucks. What is your preference? I can't stand Starbucks. I think it's disgusting. <laughs> and, and when someone brings Starbucks, I'm like, oh gosh, I have to drink that tar, essentially. Um, but get over it. Don't let that um, ruin your day or with that person. But even more serious things. Think about our politics of today. Now, I know most people in this congregation lean one way politically, but there may be some who lean the other. Some issues are very important, certain things like abortion and um, life and death issues, that bring a spiritual side. But if you're getting aggravated and upset about someone because you think the tax rate should be at 20% versus 25%, and you're going to butt heads and get aggravated over that and not talk to each other, you got to get over that. That's focusing on here rather than focusing on things above. Now, in these cases, it would be easy to give into our flesh. It is easy to give into our flesh at times and allow those things which only annoy us to end up dividing us. But if we look to heaven, if we look to things above, if we're looking to the spiritual, we realize we need to endure each other. Now, of course, most significantly, in enduring each other, we have to forgive each other. I'm talking about things that really don't matter, that, that can divide. But there's also the things that can divide us that really do matter. When someone has sinned against another person, when someone has spoken a bad word against someone else, when someone has disrespected someone else, where there needs to be forgiveness and mercy shown in those instances. Those are more than just simply and frustrating. They do outright harm those acts. Nevertheless, we have to follow the commandments to forgive one another. Matthew 6, 14 through 15. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now again, and I've taught this before, when we talk about forgiveness, we have to recognize the difference between forgiveness and excusing. Because we often mix those up today. This commandment is much more than just excusing people for when they make a mistake and it somehow harms you. Someone in the parking lot backs up, they don't see your car, they hit your bumper, puts a scratch on it. It's a mistake. You need to excuse them. They didn't sin against you unless they were doing it maliciously and out of spite. They wanted to harm your car. But if it was an accident, it's a mistake. It's an error. It's not necessarily forgiveness. You just have to show mercy and excuse them. Same way when um, someone forgets an important day in your life. Maybe it was your birthday and your best friend forgets it. You know, excuse it. They got, you don't know what's going on in their lives. But we have to step even beyond that. We have to forgive. Forgiving meaning that you acknowledge, yes, you did wrong to me. What you did was sinful. It was evil. Think of Joseph with his brothers. You did wrong. You intended evil. But because I'm commanded to do so, because God has forgiven me, I forgive you. I'm not going to let that stand between us. That's not going to be a divide between us. I'm not going to hold the offense against you. That's what Paul is really speaking of and certainly what Yeshua was commanding there in Matthew. Third instruction by Paul. In addition to all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Love here, of course, is the Greek word agape, which is the self-sacrificing love. 
It is an action, and I emphasize it's an action. It's not just a feeling, it's not an emotion, it's not an attitude towards others. That too often is what, how love is taught in today's world. Love is an action. It's an action which is taken by a person in which she or he consciously decides to sacrifice what's important to them to benefit someone else. And of course, this is the type of love that we're expected to do. Yeshua said, at the, when the judgment time comes, this is what you're going to be judged on. Matthew 25, 34 through 40 says, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. This is a love that requires us to give both of our time and our belongings. And depending on your station in life, oftentimes the time can be the more difficult thing to give rather than the belongings. Those who are middle class or, or above, those who are well off, it doesn't take much effort to uh, see someone who's struggling and you know, maybe $100 can help them out, so you give them $100 to you know, pay off a bill that they need, their electric bill for the month or something that they need to get over. That's not that big of a deal. You should do it, but um, if the Lord places it on your heart, but oftentimes it's the time that's difficult for us to sacrifice. When we're asked to help someone, maybe someone's moving or um, they have some project at their, their um, home that uh, they need help with. It could be visiting a sick congregant, a uh, fellow in, in the hospital or, or at their home. Or simply, as I've already mentioned before, just taking time out of your day to lend a, an affectionate ear, a loving ear, to give support Maybe to volunteer your time as well and somehow helping the synagogue with work that needs done here. Or even outside of Rosh Pinah's doors, going to a shelter or some other thing where it's going to take time from you. Time, it, in many ways, we've, I think we view as our most valuable asset that belongs to us. Because to give up our, my time to benefit someone else means I can't be focusing that time on achieving my goals in that moment. Or achieving... Um, um, you know, working towards my success or my own betterment or even, um, you know, just focusing on my family and their betterment and well-being. Sacrificing time often means I got to put that for aside for a moment because I see someone else in the community who really does need that time at this point. Now, of course, time and belongings is what we should be thinking about of how we can show love towards one another. But it does elevate even higher. The ultimate expression of agape love is the giving of our very lives for one another. As is expressed in Romans 5, 6 through 8. For when we were still without strength, in due time the Messiah died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone will even dare to die. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, the Messiah died for us. Now, in this instruction by Paul, like I say, put, you know, put things, he says, put on love, put on the self-sacrificing love. But he calls the love the perfect bond of unity. 
Agape love is the expression, really, of all the other attributes that we've already covered that Paul has been listing. Agape is the tender and forgiving heart. It is the compassionate, humble heart that is forgiving towards others. That is what the type of heart you need that will lead you then to show this type of self-sacrificing love towards others. Now Paul also instructs, let the peace of Mashiach, of Christ, to which you were indeed called in one body, rule in your hearts and be thankful. Peace, shalom. Shalom carries the understanding that all accounts have been settled between two individuals. And there's nothing outstanding between the two parties. There's nothing you don't owe me a debt or any, on anything. I don't see where you've done any harm to me. Maybe you even did in the past, but I don't view it that way. That's where shalom comes. The shalom of God indicates that due to the atoning sacrifice of Yeshua, he, God, no longer considers there to be anything outstanding between you and him. That sin is no longer there as an impediment between him and you. That is what we need for us to have shalom with God. Now likewise, as there is nothing between God and you because of what Yeshua's sacrifice accomplished, and there's no, nothing between God and other followers of his, there should be nothing between you and your brothers and sisters in Yeshua. If forgiveness and agape are to occur in the body, then there should be no outstanding accounts between fellow believers. Again, if we've already taken the step to follow Paul's instructions here to forgive one another, well then we don't have to worry about, well you offended me or you um, did something that really harmed me because you've forgiven them. So there should be shalom between us. Likewise, I saw when you were in need and I gave of my time, I gave of my belongings, I gave of my efforts. So that that bond is created there. And so we have shalom in Christ. And then Paul says, be thankful. He says, be peace, you know, be, let peace, the peace of Christ rule in your heart. So have that shalom and be thankful. And I think it's no mistake that he ties thanksgiving and being thankful to being peace. When you go back to Leviticus and you read about the three peace offerings, one of the offerings was a, was a thanksgiving offering to God. It was understood that when you are in peace with one and with another person, you're going to have thanks. You're going to be thankful towards them. Paul's fifth instruction, let the word of Christ richly, richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In order to have the word dwell in us, of course, we have to engage it on a daily basis. It's not going to happen if you're not opening your word and reading it. If you're not putting on, you know, in a more modern age, you're not putting on um, whatever track you have um, that you can listen to. Now, I realize that some of the time it can be difficult to get into the word daily. It shouldn't be, but it, the flesh rises up. And it can be difficult, especially when you're going through periods of time when you feel, well, God's just not speaking to me. And actually, you know, I was opening the word, I was reading it, I was listening to it, and I did it for a week, I did it for two weeks, and just nothing spoke to me. Nothing ministered to the difficulties I'm going through, the, the troubles that I have. Nothing spoke to my heart. But we have to recognize, even when you feel that way, when you're in that valley of the dry bones, as it's often referred to, 
even though you feel that way, every time you pick up your Bible and you begin to read it, if you... Even if you don't think God's speaking to you, He is. I'll come back to that here in a second. But when you find yourselves in these situations where you really are trying to make the effort to get into the Word, I think there's two things you have to always remember when you feel... I'm not hearing from God. I'm not, you know, it just seems closed to me. You have to remember when you pray, you embrace, when you approach the Word of God. It's two things that have already been mentioned this morning. You have to come with humbleness, and you have to come with endurance. You have to be humble to realize that we cannot know what God has yet to reveal to us through His Scriptures. Now, again, maybe when you're in a frustrating time and you open the Word, or maybe you're not even in a frustrating time, but you open the Word and you come upon something like the parasha this week, oh, the golden calf. I read that every year because I follow the parasha cycle. I've heard multiple teachings on it. There's nothing more for me to get out of that teaching. I know it. You have to humble yourself and realize, no, God's not done with that. There's never a time that you can say, I understand everything that passage of Scripture has to say. It may be the 12th reading, it may be the 27th reading, something new is going to, may pop out for you because you weren't in the right place in your own walk the first 26 times you read it, but that 27th time you have a new experience or you've talked with someone else who shared their experience and now all of a sudden you have a new lens, you have a new angle, perspective that you bring to those verses. So you have to be humble enough to realize God's not done using his word, any of it. Also, like I said, endurance. You have, to be keep, be, you have to be willing to keep going back to his word until you do hear something. Well, like I said, God, I, be, I believe God is speaking to you at all times through his word, but again, we don't hear it because of our own faults, our own self-interest. We don't want to hear what the word's telling us there. That, that's a harsh word. That's difficult to take. But it, that word seems to be convicting me inside. And No, it was the other people that did wrong to me. It's not my fault. Or... Um, you just can't cast your cares aside. Everything else you feel you're, you're carrying in, in your life, the burdens of life, is just too much and I can't hear what God is trying to say because of it. Or again, you're just too, you're too busy, you know, to set aside the time. And, you know, we all go through busy times in our lives where, you know, we've got deadlines to meet, we've got a lot of demands on us from family, from responsibilities to the community that you've taken on, through your job, whatever it might be, and you just find it's really difficult at times to find the time to set aside. That's why you need the endurance, you need the discipline that you're going to put, a, you're going to put aside this, the time. If you have to give up something, maybe you give up, uh, even if it's just 15, 20 minutes of sleep, even if you really need it, maybe you give up something else. But I think oftentimes it can be the burdens, it's, it's the cares that we are carrying that we don't hear God speaking with. I, and I may have used this example before, but, you know, um, when I was in my early 20s, I, like, devoured everything that C.S. Lewis wrote. I went through a phase just reading everything I could. And in one of his writings, um, he talks and he's exploring the issue of grief. Um, for, for the believer and he wrote it right after his own wife had died and he was dealing with the grief of losing his wife 
And at the beginning of the book, because it, it's a journey of the grief that he experienced, at the beginning of the book when he was, um, he talks about how in his prayers, crying out, shouting out to God, you know, why did you take her from me? Why was this the appointed time? I can't handle this. God, I need you to comfort me. And he wasn't feeling the comfort. And he said it wasn't, that's in the first chapter of the book. When you get to the last chapter of the book, when he's finally kind of worked through the grief and he's become more accepting of what has occurred, he's looking back at those times at the beginning when he was crying out to God, and he's like, God didn't hear me. He, he said what I realized was God was there and he was listening, but it, and he uses the analogy, it's like, some, like you're trying to get in the house and you're pounding on the door as loud as you can and you're pounding and screaming so loud you don't hear the person on the other side saying, door's open, come on in. And so we do that ourselves. When we're going through difficult times, we may not be just, you got to listen for the quiet voice of God. Again, we, we know it's not always in the earthquake and in the mighty wind and in, you know, it's not going to be some grand event like it was there at Sinai. We have to listen for the quiet voice. And oftentimes that quiet voice comes when we can calm ourselves and through humbleness and then through endurance get into his word and spend the quiet time with him there. When you approach the word, if you're in one of these difficult times, when you approach, start with prayer. Always pray before you go into the word. Ask the Holy Spirit, ask the Ruach to prepare your heart and to submit over to what God wants to teach you in that moment. Ask him first, Lord, put, help me put aside, cast all of these cares, put them on you. He says, the scripture tells us to put our cares on him. And just quiet me so I can hear you speaking. And when we have the word of God in us, we can then follow through on the other commands, the other instructions that we have here from Paul. And not only can we follow through on them, but we can teach and we can admonish one another when we see others not following it. As Paul writes elsewhere in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. When it says here that the word of God is for teaching, correction, training, and righteousness, teaching is not just getting up in front of the bema like I am right now and expounding upon the word. That Obviously, that's what we typically think of and that's the heart of teaching. But teaching is you can be a teacher Share your experiences with one another and take the time to listen to one another. What did you learn from God this week through what you experienced, what you read in the word? Share it with others so that you can teach them. And then apply the scriptures to what you go through in your daily lives. Teaching is more than textual and contextual analysis, word studies and hermeneutics. Understanding is only the first step. All those things are important to understand what's actually being said, but it's application of the word that's really important. How do we apply these lessons to our lives? We read, again, the, the story of the golden calf. There's a lot to draw from and to understand about it. But take the next step like we're trying to do, like I used it this morning to try to do saying like, okay, how do we as a community, let's examine ourselves to make sure we never start going down a path that way where we become more concerned about the community than being focused on the above. Now the admonishing side of things, rebuke, correction that Paul talks about, this is important as well. We have to hold each other accountable. And I say this not only because we don't want to see, 
well, it is because we don't want to see people fall into air, but it's more than just about just making sure everyone's walking the right way or the same way. At the essence of re rebuke and correction, when it's done correctly, when it's done out of love, you actually find that this is part of the essence of what it means in the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And, we, and I would I'd argue this because I go back to that original commandment in Leviticus 19, 17 through 18 that states, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So there's several things that, you know, that precede that. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's all giving instruction. Well, how do you love your neighbor as yourself? One of the things is rebuke and correction. Because again, out of love, if you see your, the person in the congregation, in the community going into the ditch, why would you not try to grab them and stop them from doing so? Again, though, when in regarding to it, admonishing and making sure we're doing it in the correct ma way, making sure that love is actually behind it, encourage you once again, watch first your own behaviors and your attitudes. Do that self-examination first. Do this anytime you're in fellowship with your brothers and sisters, whether it be here at Rosh Pinar, or if it be other um, brothers and sisters in Christ that you have in your life through family and friends. If you find yourself in a conversation you really shouldn't be having, shouldn't be occurring because there's a lack of tenderheartedness, forgiveness, or love in it, excuse yourself from the conversation on the grounds it's not appropriate. Don't criticize the people. Don't directly confront the people in front of others. Maybe you want to pull them aside afterwards. But just let your actions admonish him. Admonishment and correction often is done a lot more, not in your words, but in what you actually do. Now finally, we have the instruction from Paul, whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now if we followed this instruction more than any of the others, I believe it would likely change our behaviors more than anything else we could do. If we were to do everything in our lives in the name of Yeshua, how much idleness and sin would we eliminate from our lives? If we did this, if we followed this, and for the people in Yeshiva, I'm going to connect to the teaching this week. If we, you followed this, in everything you do in word and deed, you did it in the name of Jesus, you would be worshiping at all times. Your entire life would be a life of worship. We spoke about worship at Yeshiva and about what it truly is. That while praise is important aspect of worship, if that's your understanding of worship, you don't fully understand what it is. Worship is acknowledging the worth of God. And it can be done in any action you do that acknowledges the worth of God. And we looked at, um, you know, we looked at the Hebrew word for worship. We looked at um, some of the Greek words that are used for worship. And you see in those words, the literal meanings of those words, the acknowledging the worth of God, especially in comparison to you. The, Greek, uh, the Hebrew word, when you translate it literally for worship, it means to fall on your face, to bow down. And, and in the more extreme, to actually fall on your face. When you read worship in the Greek, the most common word used, um, it would literally translate as kiss the hand. 
And you think of, you know, if you've ever watched a movie of like ancient or uh, medieval times when someone comes before the king or like a priest or someone, you know, they fall and they'll kiss the rings, they'll kiss the hand of the person. That's the idea of worship. But as I said, it's even more extreme that if you actually break the Greek word apart, it's not just kiss the hand, it actually is the lick of the dog. So when you read, like when it says in Matthew that the Magi wanted to know where the child was born so they could go worship him, or when Hasatan tempts Yeshua to say, worship me, that Greek word literally translate as be like a dog and lick the master's hand. That's what worship really means. And so it, in, in all essences, it's falling on your face. It is kissing the hand. It is acknowledging the worth of God. The value of God. And if we would follow this again, in every word and deed we did, we did in the name of Lord Jesus, then we would get a lot more serious about what we're actually doing and, and also what we're not doing. Think about it. If you stop to think about every action you take today, every word you speak and you ask yourself, how is this being done in the name of Yeshua? Imagine we would become people that we wouldn't, even, we wouldn't even recognize ourselves anymore. For if we were to do and speak everything in the name of Yeshua, and we went about our normal lives, how often would we be in violation of Exodus 27? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The reality is every time we fail to live up to God's commandments and his expectations, we do use his name in vain. For we are supposed to be his ambassadors, members of a royal priesthood that serve as mediators between his holiness and the baseness of the world. Therefore, every time we allow ourselves to be common, to act in the flesh, to sin against God, we attach evil to his name in the eyes of those who don't know him because we are here to represent him. I mentioned about the fall of Ravi Zacharias. He has done great harm to his ministry and all the, the thousands of messages and sermons that he preached throughout his life because of this one sin that he wasn't able to remove from his life. Now, I can't judge his heart. I don't know what it was on his deathbed. That's between him and God. But the great harm has been done in the world. Many, and unfortunately, Ravi knew this. He knew this would happen if it ever came out. The reports say that the women said that he, when he was pressuring them, that he told them, if you tell the, tell the public what we're doing, if you reveal this, millions of people who have come to salvation because of my preaching may be lost and it'll be on you. So you see, obviously he was not acting. He was not heeding this instruction of in everything you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. In fact, he was actually doing evil in the name of the Lord Jesus in this instance. Now this is the burden of living our lives for Yeshua. And when you think about it, that's the burden every follower, every person who says they follow Yeshua holds. And when our Christian brothers sit there and criticize us Messianic Jews, saying, well, we're placing, you're placing all these extra burdens on yourself. You're placing burdens that Christ has removed um, by following kosher, or, you know, keeping the feasts and not working on the Sabbath, or whatever, whatever it is. 
Those aren't burdens. That's, how can that be considered a burden, giving up pork and shellfish? Not doing what you want to do on the Sabbath, but instead setting it aside for God. Not partaking in the numerous actions forbidden by God. That's not a burden. What's a burden? Everything I do should be done in the name of Jesus. That's the burden that's placed on all of us. Now, praise God that we have the eternal sacrifice of Yeshua on the altar because none of us live up to that. None of us will until we get through the white throne judgment and we enter into the new Jerusalem. But we're instead to be pursuing God's word, his instructions with zeal. Everything we do is in the name of Yeshua. We see the standard how high it is. It's why Yeshua said what he did in Matthew 5, 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now the instructions by Paul to the community here at Colossae are on one hand, they're readily acknowledged by all who would call themselves messianic or who would call themselves Christian. These are the standards we should be held up to. All of them at least will pay, pay lip service to them. They are fundamental aspects of our faith and how we should live it out. After all, how could a disciple of the Mashiach argue against exhortations to have a tender heart, to forgive others, to love others by putting them above ourselves, to have peace in our hearts and to give thanks to God, to carry the word in our hearts and to always have Yeshua at the forefront of our lives? As disciples of the Mashiach, we know these things to be true for the scriptures, both the Tanakh and the New Testament proclaim these actions, behaviors throughout them. However, when we stop to consider these instructions and we take them seriously, and that we seek to live them out in our individual lives and in our community, we realize that despite their commonness, meaning their commonness of how well they're known, they are not common at all. And what I mean by this is that although these words are often spoken on the lips of those who profess to be followers of Christ, and they're commonly agreed upon, they're not common in the actions of we, that we see. It is not what the flesh is naturally inclined towards. And I would venture to guess that if we were to look at these uncommon demands upon our common bodies, we would quickly realize how short we fall of carrying out any of them on a regular basis without great pain and effort on our parts. So if we fail so miserably, why do we still have hope for ourselves or for our community? We can have hope because of two statements that Yeshua spoke to us. First, we know that God understands that what is expected of us is not possible for us to ma maintain by our own merits in our current state. But what we cannot, what we cannot achieve, he has provided. Matthew 19, 25-26 says, When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Yeshua looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Secondly, since salvation and living a life that is in response to such salvation is possible for God, we should take much comfort that he has also given us a great gift in that although we currently are not present with our bodies, that we are present with our bodies and we're not with the Lord, he has not left us to rely only upon our flawed and meager efforts in the flesh. Rather, he has sent one that strengthens us, strengthens us in our walk and is an advocate for us living a righteous life. 
John 14, 15 through 18 states, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. And so it is by the grace of God and by the aid of his Holy Spirit that we are able to set our affections on the above, on the uncommon, on the holy, that is Christ, that is God. And we need remember this as we consider these instructions by Paul. And as we, like I said, we're in a period of reflection. We're getting ready for the Pesach. We're getting ready to, to celebrate the Passover and what Yeshua accomplished at the, the ultimate Passover. As we're taking stock, keep these things in mind. Remember the instructions of Paul that we are to, to carry out as individuals and as a community so that we can be strengthened by them. But again, remember we have the grace of God when he fails and we have the aid of his spirit so that we won't fail as much as we go forward. Amen. It is our duty to praise the master of all, to ascribe greatness to the author of creation, for he made us unlike the nations of the lands, and has not placed us like the families of the earth. He has not made our portion like theirs, and our lot like all their multitudes. And we bend the knee and bow, and acknowledge our thanks before the king over kings, the holy one, blessed be he. He stretches out heaven and establishes earth's foundation. The seat of his glory is in the heavens above, and the presence of his power is in the most exalted heights. He is our God, there is none other. True is our king, there is nothing beside him, as it is written in his Torah, and you shall know this day and take to your heart that the Lord, he is God, in the heavens above and on the earth below, there is none other. Amen.